Welcome to Kingston Reads Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Hello and welcome to the second podcast in our four-part series, Unpacking the Outcomes that Have Arisen from the Federal Government's Jobs and Skills Summit held on the 1st and 2nd of September this year. Uh, my name is Shelley Williams and I'm a partner at Kingston Reed based in our Brisbane office and today I'm joined by my fellow partner. Liam Fraser, also in Brisbane. We're very happy to be joining you today uh, to continue our discussion on the Jobs and Skills Summit and what the outcomes document published by the government provides by way of insights into the possible outcomes and legislative changes that are, that are likely to arise and, and to really just to give you our thoughts on what employers need to be thinking about as we await further details, including any amendment bills. Liam and I were also present at the Kingston Reed Job Summit Fringe Festival, which Kingston Reed held on the 30th of August and the 1st of September. So we'll also reflect on some of the themes that came out of those couple of days spent in Canberra with our excellent guest speakers from all corners of the political spectrum, unions, employers and government. Now, turning to the paper, the outcomes paper that's been published by the government, there is, there's a fair few different categories within that paper, one of which is boosting job security and wages and creating safe, fair and productive workplaces. And within the banners uh, within that paper, there are three different categories essentially that have been put up as, as areas of, of focus. Um, there are complementary existing commitments, there are immediate actions that the government is purporting it's going to take and then there are areas for further work. So Liam and I thought that um, we might traverse some of the various areas within the paper, starting with um, some of the existing commitments that the government has said they are going to, to implement. Yeah, I think a good starting point in terms of the complementary existing commitments are, are some of the reasonably well-publicised ones that seem relatively uncontroversial. I think the government's quite clear that it's going to include gender pay equity and job security in the objects of the Fair Work Act and legislate statutory equal remuneration principle to improve pay equity claims that can be advanced under the Act. So those ones I don't think are relatively uh, uncontroversial. I think that they are. And then the other one is establishing the, the two new expert panels of the Fair Work Commission for pay equity and the care and community sector. And given how strident the government has been on, on pay equity coming into the this, this summit, uh, I think that, again, those two panels are relatively uncontroversial as far as existing commitments and how they complement the, the suite of changes that's going to be imagined. I think the other one that everybody is waiting with bated breath is the 28 recommendations from the Respect at Work that you've had a, a look at, Shell, and have had some previous material we've published on on that when it, the report first came out. Yeah, that's right, Liam. And one of those key commitments that have already been made is really the implementation of Recommendation 28 of the Respect at Work report by introducing an express obligation on employers to prohibit sexual harassment in the workplace. Of course, under the Morrison government, this was one of the recommendations that were not was not adopted, but the Labor government has committed to implementing the recommendation. So it's likely that what will occur is, is that there'll be an introduction of a positive duty on employers to take all reasonable steps and proportionate steps to prevent sexual harassment, sex discrimination and discrimination from occurring in the workplace. Essentially what I think will happen is that it'll require amendments to be made to the Sex Discrimination Act. So the, the recommendations in the Respect at 
work report did include some guidance as to what might need to be considered when determining whether a measure is reasonable and proportionate, which includes, you know, the size of the the person's organisation or operation or, or the business itself, the nature and the circumstances of the business and its operation, the, the resources that are available to the organisation, as well as its strategic priorities. So those are some of the things that will be taken into account in determining whether an organisation has met its positive duty. Now, while it's certainly it's an area that many employers are, are concerned about and there, is, there are going to be additional obligations that are imposed as a result of this duty or, or obligation from a statutory perspective, but there are, um, there are some learnings that can be taken from other jurisdictions. So, for example, in the Victorian jurisdiction, there's already a positive duty to, to prevent and eliminate sexual harassment in the workplace and the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission has published some really helpful guidance and materials in respect of what that looks like. There's essentially what the the Commission has identified is sort of six minimum standards that organisations need to meet. That includes knowledge, so, you know, ensuring that there is adequate training and development across your organisation, a prevention plan, and there's been a lot of media attention lately in relation to Baker's Delight and the idea of a prevention plan is perhaps and perhaps would be new to many of our listeners but it's something that has been identified as a potential um, area of focus in in meeting that positive duty to prevent or eliminate um, sexual harassment in in, um, an organisation. There's also another standard which relates to organisational capability, risk management, reporting and response and monitoring and evaluating or reviewing how you're performing as compared to to the objectives that you've set out in terms of meeting that positive duty to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. So I suspect that any federal um, standard or obligation is is going to largely mirror some of those existing obligations in, in other jurisdictions. Those are a couple of the existing commitments, but what about those other areas of the federal government that the, that's been identified for immediate action? Liam, do you want to talk about some of those areas? Yeah, some of the immediate actions that came out in the paper that was produced post-summit, uh, th- there's some interesting ones. One that caught my eye was the provide proper support for employer bargaining representatives and union delegates. And probably a bit to unpack out of what that commitment actually results in. People who were listening to Alice and Stephen last week might have heard them discussing whether the Commission takes a more active, facilitative role in bargaining. And, and that might be something that is, is considered as part of the suite of changes to improve bargaining is, is to actually improve the, the, the support that the Commission can provide, or if it's not Commission members, that the Commission has some resources that are available for those people who are engaged in bargaining. And I think that would be an interesting one to actually see what spills out of the discussions that are happening. Uh, I think there was also some discussions around providing stronger access to flexible work. And there was also a press release from Tony Burke on, on this topic. And he was talking about providing stronger access to flexible work arrangements and unpaid parental leave so that modern families can share work and caring responsibilities. And he was also talking about strengthening protection for for workers against adverse action in all forms. So I think in regards to the flexible work, that's interesting, Shell, that they're moving towards talking more about increasing women's participation in the workplace. So I think that's probably one of the areas where I think we'll, we'll see that. 
Yeah, definitely. And as sort of Alice and Stephen spoke to in the last podcast, increasing flexibility in and, and inserting flexibility into the system is arguably beneficial for employees and employers. And there are ways in which we can foresee additional flexibilities added to the system. And Alison Stevens spoke about, you know, uh, potential changes to the IFAs, but there's also a potential to broaden out this, the scope of the flexible work arrangement provisions in Section 65 of the Fair Work Act. So something that I foresee potentially occurring is, is a broadening out of the categories. So There might be, for example, an extension to First Nations people or women generally in addition to the categories which were, as we know, further extended back in March 2021 and prior to that as well. So there's been an increasing and expansion of the, the categories. So it's sort of, it's moved to those with disability, workers that are over the age of 55, those with caring responsibilities those experiencing domestic violence, um, you can see that there's a possibility there to then continue to build on that and to extend that out um, to First First Nations people and and to women more broadly to capture some of those flexibilities that are being discussed. There was also, just picking up on the point that you raised previously about supporting employer bargaining representatives and union delegates, we heard at the Fringe Festival from Michaelia Cash, who raised one of the matters that Tony Burke had recently spoken to, which included an idea of of potentially including some sort of union induction program as part of new migrants entering into Australia, which I thought was is, is an interesting concept. But you could also see that potentially there might also be some form of other mandatory training or or introducing workers to the notion of union membership as part of the bargaining process, Um, but even more broadly. But if you you were going to insert it into the bargaining process, it might be, you know, ensuring that workers are introduced to unions in a bit more of a robust way than is currently contemplated in the Act, which is that they essentially get, you know, the notice of employee representational rights at the commencement of bargaining and 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 away you go. So there is a focus on improving access to representation and, and that obviously has impacts on employees, but it also extends potentially to supporting employer associations as well. Yeah, I think certainly for somebody who's practising the Queensland jurisdiction, union encouragement clauses are not entirely foreign so something like that popping up which there there is that delicate balance between the freedom of association which I think a lot of people hold dear and and the union encouragement that certain certainly the ACTU was was very keen for that in some of the papers that, that, that they published before the summit so I think we can all sort of accept that there are immediate actions that the government's wanting to take the department is currently consulting with unions and, and businesses, and that's already started. That was kind of when they when they said that was an immediate action. That that was a literal immediate. It, it was happening the ne- the very next week. So that's very much a watch this space in terms of whether we're going to see anything in the sort of immediate parliamentary calendar looking like it's going to come through in, in terms of changes. So I think we'll start to get a, a bit of feedback out of those consultations once the parties have had, probably had an opportunity to ventilate that that stuff. So, And then we're turning to, to other areas of further work, and I think that's probably an interesting one where there's no immediate kind of plans, but one of the ones that I think caught a lot of people's eye, particularly in the road transport sector, was was this notion around giving the commission jurisdiction to, fet, to set fair pay. That just sounds like 
road safety remunerates the tribunal mark too, doesn't it? That's exactly right. So that is precisely what it sounds like. It's a reintroduction really of the road safety remuneration tribunal. Even though it's sort of, it's been kicked down the road, so to speak, it's certainly one that we can foresee occurring. The, The other area for further work that caught my eye was the suggestion in relation to ensuring that workers have reasonable access to representation to address genuine safety and compliance issues at work. And that kind of intersects with probably the right of entry requirements as they exist at the moment and no doubt a desire from certain stakeholders to relax some of the right of entry requirements. But also, from what I see in, in terms of my practice of assisting people on right of entry and, and specifically in relation to work health and safety disputes or issues, there's in the harmonised jurisdictions that, that have the, the Work Health and Safety Act, there's some provisions in there around sort of Section 81 allowing representatives to come in and assist with with issue resolution. And that's been something that has caused a bit of friction, particularly in the construction industry, where you've got people who may not have a right of entry permit who are nonetheless attempting to enter workplaces to exercise uh, rights to discuss and resolve issues. So I'm not sure if that's exactly what that's getting at, but it, it, it's opaque enough that that could be what it's what it's trying to address is, is this notion that for a genuine safety issue, is there a requirement to exercise right of entry? I, I'm not sure. It's yeah. just one of those areas for further work. Yeah, and certainly from a compliance perspective, as you, as you say, you can foresee that there's a potential broadening out of those right of entry provisions. So, you know, tinkering around the edges in respect of the, you know, permit holders and who's capable of entering the workplace to deal with those issues of compliance or safety concerns loosening some of the notice requirements in respect of when you can enter a workplace. All of those things, I think, could potentially fall within that banner. It's the notion of a genuine safety issue that I struggle with because I think a lot of people would concede that some safety issues are less genuine than others. So that's a real watch this space and it will be fascinating to see if there is any tinkering with the right of entry. Certainly with the abolition of the ABCC, that has really changed the landscape in terms of how right of entry is going to be policed in the construction industry, which is where, unsurprisingly, we see most of the right of entry disputes. So again, that's just a real sort of watch this space area. Yes. And then the the final point, which is considering possible improvements to modern awards and the national employment standards. Which <laughs> we could probably all concede would be a podcast series of its own <laughs> if, right. uh, if, if it wanted to be. In regards to the National Employment Standards, we heard at the the Fringe Festival one of the requests from, I think, uh, businesses that operate across state lines was was fixing up long service leave. Whether there's any appetite for the federal government to essentially call that in uh, and and take that over off of the states, I don't know. But it is quite amusing and one of our fellow partners, Katie Sweetman, who is very, very vocal in her views around dragging in long service leave entitlements into the NES. It is quite perverse that you have a one of the national employment standards that essentially just refers you back to your state jurisdiction. So that's one. And I think in regards to modern award, there was, as Alice and Stephen discussed last week, there was a four-yearly review of modern awards that took about eight years. There's been a massive simplification process that was engaged in by the Commission to work with plain English drafting whether there's a desire or even the resources from the Commission to 
engage in that and, and do something of, of that ilk. Uh, certainly, there's a there's probably a broad desire for award simplification even further. Whether there's any direction from the government around what it would like the commission to do in that space, but yes, consider possible improvements is probably just an invitation for various industry stakeholders to to ventilate uh, their current frustrations with the system and, and see what they can do. But Yeah, hence why it's an area for further work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I think we'll, we'll all be fascinated to see what the white paper has to say in that regard. Yes, that's right. And then moving to, and we just wanted to touch on one of the, the other sort of categories within the outcomes paper, which is promoting equal opportunities and reducing barriers to employment. There's a couple of immediate actions, Liam, that the government's proposing to take. Uh, do you want to talk to some of those? Yeah, I think the, the, the actions they're proposing in relation to gender equality standards and, and certain uh, reporting measures and measurable targets. So, so there appears to be a reasonable consensus view that making businesses with 100 or more employees publicly report their gender pay gap to, to the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. So that seems to be something that has gained some traction. I think the, the ACT- ACTU, yeah, yeah. That the ACTU published an issues paper in advance of the job summit and they had actually proposed that be businesses with 20 employees. So the government's obviously already considered that point and, and landed on the 100 employee mark there. Yeah, which uh, I think is a relatively reasonable number. 100 employees is a relatively decent-sized business and, and 20 is, is very much tending towards a small business and, and might yeah, distort some right. of the numbers. Yeah, that's right. And, and if you're wanting to make meaningful change to the gender pay gap, then it, it makes sense to target um, businesses that have more employees. And in terms of the reporting standards, there was a suggestion about requiring employers with 500 or more employees to commit to measurable targets. So we haven't really seen what those measurable targets will look like, but that's going to be something that I think in terms of the, the government's commitment is a relatively straightforward kind of legislative change it's just what it looks like in terms of what those measurable targets are and yeah and that's right and whether it's an amendment to the workplace gender equality act for example or whether you try and achieve those targets through other means so sort of policy implementation and guidance that sort of sits or regulatory framework that sits alongside any legislative changes to to that workplace gender equality act yeah so i i, I think again it's an immediate action. There'll be some consultation about it. Certainly, the ACTU's papers before the the summit expressed some views around what what they were looking at, and the government seems relatively committed that that's that's going to be part of their agenda moving forward. So yes, we we'll no doubt see what comes out of it. I think from from our perspective, in terms of what you and I were hoping to cover today, that's that's a lot of of sort of complementary existing stuff. There's some areas for further work and the immediate actions. From our perspective, I'm very keen to watch what happens in, in regards to the consultation that's happening with the department and unions in relation to some of those uh, immediate actions for, for changes to the Act. I'm not entirely certain on what the government has set itself in regards to a time frame, but consultation takes just as long as consultation <laughs> does in, in our experience. So, I mean, I, th- I think we're... We're relatively set on a course for some changes that, that are likely to happen in the Act 
Yes, you know, and of, relatively yeah, soon. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And of course, just waiting out to see what gets published by way of a white paper. And the the material that's been published so far indicates that the government will open that consultation up more broadly and there's a suggestion that you might even be able to make submissions in respect of your views regarding the outcomes paper and and what the government is proposing. So if you are interested in and listening in today, then please get in contact with Kingston Reid and our team because we can certainly explore those options with you in further detail. I think that brings us to the end. It's been great shooting the breeze with you this afternoon, Liam, and we look forward to continuing the conversation next week in the third part of our podcast series. Sounds great. Until then.